peace be with you this new year, 2021, and in a week where peacefulness has not been much on display in the political chaos south of the borders and throughout the world. But peace we claim, because we can, we always can, even in the midst of turmoil, whether our own or that in the outside world. When we claim peace, when we hold to peace, we offer a ballast for all that is not peaceful and a kind of homecoming place for the Spirit of Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God, which is to say the cloak of the divine will be placed upon their shoulders. I am Reverend Dr. Candace Bist, and along with my husband, Bruce Lee, I have been serving the Shelburne Primrose Pastoral Charge for five years, and this is my last podcast, the third of a series of personal reflections as a kind of farewell to all of you. And today I wanted to reflect on the current state of our churches, of Christianity, and its future, and some of the things I've learned in my years ministering within those constructs. I suppose that's the first thing to take note of. Christianity is a construct, something that was created, an ideology that combined various conceptual elements, most of which were subjective. As it developed, it gathered to it writings, traditions, doctrines, and spiritual leaders that each brought with them their various new viewpoints. Over time, the construct has been under continual renovation, torn down to the ground and built back up numerous times, had additions built on and taken off, has in fact always been in the midst of some kind of remodeling project. And that is something to take note of. Our faith tradition is always changing, shifting, re-examining itself. And this is particularly true in the Reformed tradition of which we are a part. Its motto, Reformed and always reforming. I am sure, like myself, you would sometimes wish that everything would just simply stay exactly the same. But this cannot be, I'm afraid, any more than when we, waking up each morning, live in a static form. Change, that, as they say, is the only constant. But there is something that runs deeper than the construct of Christianity, something eternal, powerful, the base from which Christianity springs, the base from which all religions, all true art, literature, creativity, life springs. And this is the divine source, the ground of being that we have called God, though others have named it differently. Christianity grew out of a particular place and time around a particular person, Jesus the Christ as we call him, and as such has a particular history. It is not our job to try and direct or redirect that history because our faith is one based on co-creation. We work in concert with the Divine Spirit, embracing the richness of the human life and leaving God the divine matters which are beyond our purview. But we not only work with God, we work with one another. We gather together in our spiritual endeavors, and this really is the heart of the church the journey that we take together, you and I and every other person who comes to walk with us, not in perfect union with our thinking perhaps, but in their desire to be part of the journey of learning how to live in a loving way with others, 
to practice compassion, to understand the depths of grace, the endless mercy. All those who wish to understand these things are welcomed as sojourners. Pilgrims on a journey, fellow travelers on the road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. Sister, let me be servant let me be as Christ to you pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too and I will hold the Christ light for you doing my training as a spiritual director, we were asked to write, in a hundred words or less, the story of our spiritual journey. How it was we had arrived at the doorstep of Regis College, and what it was we desired most in life, in a hundred words or less. You can know that was a struggle, especially for long-winded me, but really for all of us because everyone's call history, as it is named, the lengthy story of how we are called into ministry, is just that, lengthy and convoluted. It seemed impossible. So I decided to let my deeper voice speak rather than plan out what I would write. As is always the case, deep wisdom surprised me. It wrote... I was born of human desire and God's amazing grace. My grandmother marveled at each blade of grass and knelt each morning to pray. I loved my grandmother, so I knelt too. Jesus puzzled me. Jesus called me. And after many years of coloring the edge of his robe, I answered, I desire peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding and resides on the other side of wholeness. 
I desire to travel home, even as I continue to live in the far country. 83 words, not too bad. The reference to the far country comes from the German philosopher, monk, and mystic, Meister Eichard, who lived at the height of Christendom at the end of the 13th and the beginning of the 14th century. He wrote, God is home. We live in the far country. And when I talk about coloring the edge of Jesus's robe, that is a sensory memory from Sunday school. We had these little books that I loved with a story on the left side and a picture on the right. I always wanted my pictures to be beautifully colored, and I thought the best way to do that was to outline the robes of Jesus and his disciples with a dark color and then to fill them in with a softer stroke of the colored pencils. You might want to try that yourself sometime. Oh, not the coloring of the Sunday school pictures, though. That isn't a bad idea either. I mean the writing out of your spiritual journey. Just sit quietly. Ask God for direction. And see what the deep wisdom has to tell you. 100 words or less. Wouldn't that be a fun project for all of you to do and then chat about? I've often thought that many of the simple things we did in seminary should be shared with all the people of the way. At any rate, my little 83-word description, which is personal to me, I think, is kind of a template for all spiritual adventures. We are all born of human desire of some kind or another and of God's amazing grace. We had someone, or if we were lucky, more than one person, who was enraptured by the amazement of nature, the natural world being the first and the eternal scripture. And there was someone in our lives who loved God and whom we loved, and we followed them in that love. The divine spirit is always calling us by name. Sometimes we listen, sometimes we don't. Sometimes it takes us a long time to answer back, but eventually we do. We all want peace. Peace is where love and humility live in harmony so that we are granted rest within ourselves and with all others. We are all drawn to the heart of God that is our home. That is how we are made, with a kind of homing instinct within us. Where we live now is the far country. We are asked to live well here, and the more we do so, the more our heart rests with home.
That is a barroom blues. You just, you just got to love the barroom blues with the scripture. It's such a great combination. So Kathleen McAlpine was the woman who led my two-year training in spiritual direction. She was my supervisor during that time. She was a nun of deep gifting and a member of the Sisters of Mercy a relatively new order that was formed at the end of the 19th century. And just as a side note, as we talk about the church changing, at that time, the time the order was formed in Ireland, there was a great controversy over the fact that this new group wanted to combine the contemplative life with the active one. That, of course, is a common way of thinking now, that we start in contemplation and prayer and from that quiet place move out into the world in service. This idea was written about extensively by Thomas Merton, the popular American monk of the 20th century. But in the 19th century, the idea was contested as nuns were asked to choose either to be contemplative or to work actively in the community. Times change, and so does our thinking. At any rate, Sister Kathleen asked us to consider this. What do you desire? Because, she told us, what you deeply desire is what God desires to give you. She was right about a great many things, Kathleen, and I think she is right about this. So how is it that my answer to this question was peace? My deep wisdom wrote, I desire peace. Even as my mind recoiled, argued, claimed the impossibility of such a thing, still my spirit recognized the deeper truth. We desire peace. God desires to give us peace. This would seem at first glance ludicrous, for in what context these days is there peace? The world is at war. It is at war with the environment, with its human nature, with its unfolding Disease rages out of control. People rage out of control. Storms rage out of control. Despair blankets the haves and the have-nots, encroaching on any false sense of security that a hot meal might offer, though it must be offered nevertheless. Families falter. Young and old battle addictions and compulsions of all kinds. We say we yearn for community, but our armored tanks keep us separate from others. And isolation these days is a challenge. We war with our very natures, imprisoning ourselves in walls of hate, unforgiveness, anger. Inside the church and without, there is a resistance to the broadening of our views that can at times feel like a physical assault, the bitterness and intolerance to new people and new ideas can be cruelly subversive, subtly pejorative. And within me, the blood of the warrior runs thick in my veins. Nasty Scottish potentates and English street brawlers tainting my blood with an energy not always manageable, 
not many signs of peace in the world or in the church or in myself. Our own faith is an embarrassment of Procrustean triumphalist Christianity that has swaggered its way from one end of the earth to the other, burning and slashing its way to imperialist power in its not-so-hidden agenda of domination, and all in the name of the gentle Jesus who told us we were not to use the sword. The North American native people whose love of nature and knowledge of the earth reflected a deep reverence for God were trampled to death in our expansionist dreams of grandiose spiritual superiority. Though I think, in fact, the need was for beaver hats and a fresh lumber supply. At the center of our faith is the Prince of Peace. One might never know that when surveying the massive graves of those slain, broken, wounded, abused, and manipulated in the name of Christ. Peace? Where? We are mocked in common culture when we speak of peace, for everyone knows it has been otherwise. Still, peace emerges beyond our broken promises, our failed theologies, our imperfect selves, because peace is the will of God and it will not be overruled. Peace emerges. It sprouts up, little blades of bright green grass poking through the broken concrete. There is emerging in the most unexpected places a yearning for the truth of the spirit which will not be bounded by the parceling out of divine knowledge to some elitist few. There is a new spirituality birthing itself in stables here and there, emerging around the edges with those who are unregistered 
It is tentative, delicate, and yet possessing the vigor that most often accompanies the newborn. The common narrative of the day will not offer it to you, but it is there if you look carefully and you desire to protect it and to fan the flames of its existence and to see it in little nooks and crannies unnoticed by others. There is, of course, the obvious places of peace, a walk through the woods, the stillness of the moon, the quiet sound of your footstep on the snow. But it is in less obvious places. Listen for it in the lyrics of music unfamiliar to you. Listen for it in your conversation with a stranger. Watch for it in the little slips on television where you least expect it. Did I actually hear the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, speak about the importance of January 6th as the Feast of the Epiphany and the importance she places on her prayer life? Why do we think that those who storm the Capitol in violence have nothing to say? Everyone has something to say that helps us learn where God is moving in humanity. What is it we are to be learning? Peace is hard fought and hard won. How can we as Christians reclaim our place as peacekeepers in this world? To begin with, we can't be afraid of controversy with worrying about being popular or following the status quo. And always, we begin with ourselves, with bringing peace to our own hearts, our own homes, our churches and communities. Our faith is an embodied faith. Our leader was not always peaceful, nor did his choices always initiate peace around him. Jesus often brought disruption, but he embodied his desire for peace, and that is why we call him the Prince of Peace, because he focused his energies upon it, knowing it was often controversial, misunderstood, difficult to obtain. Still, he pressed towards it, gathered within himself the fragments of peace, as he came to understand them and lived as if peace were attainable, knowing it was the very heart of God. This also is our calling. Deep in our hearts, there is a calm. a common song deep in our hearts there is a common story telling creation that we are one deep in our hearts there is a common purpose deep in our hearts there is a common a sacred message, justice and peace in harmony. Deep in our hearts, there is a common longing. Deep in our hearts, there is a common theme. Deep in our hearts, there is a common Deep in our hearts, there is a common vision. Deep in our hearts, there is a common song. Deep in our hearts, there 
last week in the lectionary, there was the reading from the second chapter of Matthew, verses 1 to 18, that tells us the tale of the traveling astrologers, or magi, or as we have come to think of it, the story of the wise men from the East. And not to be overlooked is the fact that the story of the exotic fellows we imagine traveling through the night on camels takes place in the midst of the slaughter of the innocents. In the storytelling of the creche, the setting of the nativity, the wise men are jumbled in with the shepherds and the angels in one large three-dimensional picture book that does not exist in the scriptures as such. But the idea is that we would bring together all the characters in one story into one time and place. But nowhere in the crash do we honor the mothers mourning the loss of their children or highlight those who did the violent bidding of Herod, or Herod and his minions for that matter. The nativities we have created hold only half the story of the mystical telling of the birth of Jesus. Perhaps when you were young, you had your favorite among all the characters, and I don't think I was alone in choosing the so-named wise men, because they were generally the ones with the most interesting costumes, something exotic-looking. But it is interesting that children are drawn to these particular characters in the birth story of Jesus because they have been profoundly overlooked in the development of our faith. The outsiders were the ones that came to honor Jesus. And of all the outsiders gathered around together, the unwed mother, the unheralded Joseph, the shepherds, the animals, and the angels, none were quite so outside as those who came from somewhere far away. Doubtless, Matthew was imagining Persian astrologers, king-like in their superiority to others through their knowledge of science and astronomy and the ways the world worked. They were so far away from the world of Mary and Joseph, and yet, as Matthew tells the story, the young couple welcomed the Magi into their home. They accepted their gifts, strange as they must have seemed. They recognized that there was wisdom here unknown to them. In this time in our church history, it is good to be reminded that the honoring of the Spirit of Christ and the gathering around the ethics of Jesus' teaching may come from a wide array of sources. This is the new emerging of the Spirit, breaking out where it will and how it will. There are these two profound wisdoms in Matthew's telling that need highlighting over and over again. They are there, right at the beginning of our faith tradition, embedded in the imagined tale of Jesus' birth, chosen as important pieces of information to include, and we have ignored them at our peril. Firstly, the honoring of the Christ child may come from any source. Mary and Joseph, in their deep humility, welcome those from another faith, another nationality, another race, into their home, knowing there are no boundaries laid down by God that exclude those who may recognize the possibility of a new understanding of God. And secondly, the birth of Christ, the birth of peace, takes place in the midst of dying, suffering, horror, and loss. You may see this in any way you wish, but see it you must. Because a church to be alive, a faith to be alive, must allow that in the midst of new birth, there takes place the dying off of old ideas, old traditions, old ways of being. Do we honor them? Yes, as part of our history. 
but they must not impede new understandings of the way of humanity and the way of the divine. Ken Zahested articulates this beautifully in his epiphany reflection, and here are some words from his conclusion. Here is the evangelical proclamation of people of faith. The storm still rages, and we are on leaky boats, outmatched by menacing wind and surging swells. But a calm is coming. The angels still preface their message with fear not, for faith is tricky business, risky business, and devils still stalk the land. Nevertheless, Isaiah's claim echoed in Luke's rendering is that all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. And John the Revelator asserts that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdoms of our God. Much empirical evidence disputes this claim. People of faith insist otherwise and, in fact, assume the risks of living in accordance with a very different vision, a vision which brings us into conflict with the current disorder. Angel wings and devil tails often appear simultaneously in history's unfolding. In the end, Christmas cheer is not sugar plum pleasantry, it is the confidence that sustains the hearts of all who continue to practice praise in the manner of Mary. With the beatific vision underlying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, even in the face of perpetual threat. Sing then, children, whatever the caliber or timbre of your voice. For God is more taken with the agony of the earth than the ecstasy of heaven.
prepare services week after week for five years without coming to a profound sense of gratitude for the scriptures, for the teachings of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, for all those who work towards bringing the ethics within those scriptures to life, and to all of you who listen and absorb what is taught and then take it out into the world to practice. In all the years I have ministered in churches, it has never failed to amaze me that people get up on a certain morning of the week and come to be spiritually taught as grown-ups. Week after week, you come to hear what new understandings may yet be born within you. And whether it has been as it has for the last year through podcasts or in the past, sitting in the pews. That is what humility looks like, and I thank you for the unique view I have had of it. These are some of the things I have learned these five years as a fellow sojourner with all of you. It is the smallest of kindnesses, the little braveries that so often go unnoticed that change me, uplift me, soften my heart, make me more tender towards myself and to others. Though I suppose then that there is no such thing as a small act of courage or of kindness because they each come with the power of heaven, unseen with the eye, but known and honored by God. It matters not at all what the world says about you because, for one thing, people get bored easily and if they are inclined to gossip, they pass on quickly to talk about another. So why should we worry what people think about us? We are doubtless not as good as some people claim and not as bad as others declare. The only thing that matters is the state of our heart. And we are the only ones who can measure that. It follows then that to interpret the motives of another is an impossible matter. Paul writes that love always hopes for the best. So it is a good practice to always hope for the best in the behavior of others. At the same time, we are willing to look carefully at our own motives and intentions. But in the end, we can never go wrong when we are kind, for kindness is never a poor choice. And here is my current thought on matters of the church formal. The conversion of Constantine back in the 4th century was the effective beginning of Christendom, namely of that particular form of the Christian religion that consists of a strong alliance of Christianity with political and social power, sometimes amounting to the practical identification of Christianity with the dominant forces of the society in which it finds itself. So writes Canadian theologian Douglas John Hall, That time in history has now passed, and Christianity in the Western world now stands sidelined by the power of the empire that both spread our faith throughout the world and perpetrated untold violence on nations and races and other religions. In doing so, we lost the heart of our faith and any honors we might have held in the public view. 
But now we are freed from this dubious sense of success, and we should rejoice and be glad. For Christianity was never meant to be part of the dominant culture, was never meant to compete in the powerful circles of those vying for economic security. Christianity was always there for each person to find their way to God through the caring for others and the serving of the larger good. This does not in any way remove it from the field of politics. Jesus lived right in the middle of the political field, but he held his own course, and so must we. Really, in the end, what I know to be true is that everything is uncertain. But uncertainty can be a restful place to live when you are certain of the mercy and power of God and when you are certain of your own belovedness and constant in your affection to all others who also bear the mark of the Creator's love. Then the world and everything and everyone in it is a gift. And what could be more joyful than that? In the bulb there is a flower in the seed, an apple tree. In cocoons, a hidden promise. Butterflies will soon be free. In the cold and snow of winter, there's a spring that waits to be unrevealed. Until its season, something God alone can see. There's a song in every silence, seeking word and melody. There's a dawn in every darkness, bringing hope to you and me. From the past will come the future, what it holds, a mystery. I want to encourage you, if you are serious about your faith, to explore our website, especially the About section. You will see we have included this wonderful document, Song of Faith. It not only includes the latest poetic version of the United Church's core beliefs, but the thinking behind the writing. If you want to do a simple study together this year, it would be a great document to read through and have conversations about. They would be lively. The theology is modern, fresh, and addresses all the challenges you are currently facing in the world. The more grounded each of you is in the knowledge of your faith, the stronger the larger church will be, and strong churches help the world in miraculous ways. 
Though I have now officially finished my time with the pastoral charge, I will be available to our clerks of session this month to tidy up some administrative matters. And we have set up a wonderful quartet to continue the work on the website each week to offer you Sunday services to attend, as well as videos, film clips, and articles to read, just as I have been doing these last months. And if you have a certain podcast or streaming service you find particularly helpful, pass this on to your clerk of session, and they will see that it gets to the team choosing your Sunday morning services. Your search team continues to interview and review applicants, and I am sure they will find wonderful spiritual leadership for you very soon. Keep them in your prayers along with your counsels. Thank you for five really wonderful years of learning together, of singing together, of trying to vision our way forward as a church. You have so much to offer your neighborhoods. I feel as if you are just on the brink of all that you have to gift into the community and beyond. Stay grounded in your faith. Hold one another's hands and take care of one another. Listen to the leading of the Spirit. And then let God be free to do the business that is divine. It is an unstoppable partnership when you come to truly engage with it. Let us pray together one last time. Gracious and merciful one, creator of all there is and all there will ever be. We have our being in you, and the way forward is found in you. Behind and in front, you hem us in. There is no place we can go where you are not there. Grant us all the ability to hear your callings, to heed your callings, to do the simple and sometimes not so simple things we are asked to do. Grant us the ability to rest quietly in the surety that you know the way forward, and though we do not, we are sure of you. May we follow in the way of love, knowing we will find our way home. But while we live as we do in the far country, grant us courage for the journey, joyful companions for the road, sweet conversations, and minds that open to new thought and new possibilities that welcome the stranger and the angelic messengers alike with open-armed embrace. Hear us now as we sing together the prayer that Jesus taught us.
May the peace and love of God that surpasses all understanding be with you. And may the compassion and grace that is in the heart of Christ be in your heart also. And may the fellowship and the guidance of the Holy Spirit that moves and breathes and has its being among us all be known to you this day and all days.